And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe found us on the podcast, which found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out if you have not. If you are listening, you're probably aware that this is not the voice of our often co-host, David Franklin, our own host editor. He is unfortunately out sick today, so you just have me, Stefan, and... Lauren, thanks for being here, Lauren. Woohoo! You 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 cut me off. I was gonna make a joke. I thought you were gonna introduce yourself, and then you were gonna have me introduce myself, and I was gonna say I'm David Franklin Irwin Hofstadter. Oh, but it, that's I'm not. Funny, I'm not. Mm. You ruined my joke. Hey, listeners, I'm, I'm. It's all right. I'm Lauren. You've just got you've just got <laughs> Steph and Lauren today. We're all right I, though. We're fun. We're pretty good. We're yeah. smart ish. Yeah, we're doing we stuff. Make it work. Yeah, <laughs> we make it work. I mean, yeah, even the joke, which honestly was a good joke. I, I'm you. deeply sad that I did not make that happen. So we have a, a great show for you. We have a very, I, I would say, almost feature-length interview. Uh, it's, about, it's about 40 minutes long, maybe a little bit less. And it is with uh, Deirdre Leonita, who very long-term listeners of the show will remember, was a correspondent with us at least five, if not seven years ago. And she's gone off uh, to do great things, including she is the co-director and producer of a film called Keepers of the Land, which uh, is just finished airing at the Planet and Focus Film Festival, is airing in Vancouver in the coming week, I believe, and soon will be available online. And it is a fantastic film. I got to see a screener. And it's a great conversation about Indigenous-led conservation and the importance of talking to the people who've been on the land for time and Moria about how it should be taken care of, because we don't do that well. And that really does not help our attempts to preserve any land. This no. is what you will learn. That's really cool. I hope to check that out myself at some point. For, for listeners who like, I don't know, I feel like especially Indigenous-led conservation is it's a conversation that ties into like the biodiversity side of things. It ties into climate because like, yes, we all know lands when they're managed by indigenous communities and indigenous nations fare far better than when they're managed by settler colonizer states. But also it's like it, it comes into play in a really exciting way in conversations and discourse around land back and what land back means and what that effectively looks like. So like that's that's also like an exciting frame is, is like, is that something that's explored or touched on at all in, in either the documentary or the conversation you have? A little bit. Certainly, the documentary is really about the fact that these hereditary chiefs and and then the the co-director is actually the elected chief as well. Mm. And one of the conversations that, you know, this has been work that has been their work for as long as they have been here, which is, you know, first, we don't we don't even know how long it's been very, very, very long. And interestingly, if I remember, if, if I understood the documentary correctly, the hereditary chiefs actually each have particular parts of the land that they are responsible for. And right. so there's a there's sort of a an overarching ethos of conservation in this particular nation. It's the the Kitasu Haihais in the Great Bear uh, Rainforest, as, as we know it at least. And they're building a conservation program with the youth and basically to pay attention and to watch what happens as more tourists come back after COVID. And so they've actually just, it's, it's a very interesting story. And they've, and they've successfully actually already negotiated a couple ways to protect some of the uh, marine life in the area. And wow. so they've done a lot of great work slowly building out their own sort of 
relationship with the federal government, the colonial government, to give them more jurisdiction, which is really something that that we do get into a fair amount. Very cool. Okay, so excited for yeah, that it, conversation. So excited to check out that movie. Yeah, it's great. Keep us in the land. But so we do have a, a few. We have three news stories we want to make sure we do get to. And the first is a is a follow up of the story that we've been covering the last few weeks, which is that the federal NDP caucus has now officially is calling for a ceasefire, as have 160 approximately climate organizations. And they were almost joined by Justin Trudeau, who quite nearly said it during a press conference, but then in what would have been quite the Freudian slip until he caught himself. And so the the calls are getting louder. There still, unfortunately, has not been a lot of movement from the, the United States or our actual sort of, you know, federal controlled government. But the, the calls are getting louder and louder and louder. And the work that's being done by by activists to push this has been truly inspiring, including a bunch of sit-ins that actually occurred over the past past week in different MP offices. Yeah, this particular, I know this isn't the point of the story. The point of the story is that that we're finally seeing uh, pressure from the NDP. We're finally seeing pressure from the, from at least from our community, from the climate community, et cetera, et cetera. But God, this clip of Trudeau giving this press conference in Washington is pretty hilarious. Well, hilarious, but also just like maddening. Like I say funny, of course, there's nothing actually funny about it, but it does like it just it seems like something out of Veep, this like the the way that he almost says ceasefire, I think three separate times in this clip and then immediately pedals it back. It's like, what's what's this one? Somebody clipped it um, and has the text here. We need to see a cease. We need to see a humanitarian pause so we can flow. We need we need ceasing of the levels of violence that we're seeing. So like, come Oof. on, dude, yeah. you spineless jellyfish of a man. It's unbelievable. The fact that like, I think what this almost demonstrates to me and like, obviously, I don't want to read too much into it. I don't want to make him out to be a stronger, more progressive person than he is. But like, clearly, this is something that he I don't know, you could you could read into this and think that like, oh, he really does want a ceasefire. If he were actually speaking from a place of honesty and truth and I don't know, realistic acknowledgement of the situation and like the war crimes that Israel is perpetrating here, he would call for a ceasefire. The only reason he isn't using that very specific and important terminology is because we're just so in the clutches of like weird right wing, gross discourse. Uh, it was it was a ridiculous clip. If you haven't already watched it or listened to it, go seek it out. It's about 30 seconds long, but it's a pretty damning 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we need a ceasing of of the violence that we're seeing or the levels of violence, which is almost even worse. Speaking of things that Trudeau is bad at ceasing, this is a terrible segue into the fact that the next piece of environmental news is that we are not going to hit our targets, according to the auditor general. What? They, I had no idea. I know I we were on track. We've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> so hard for us. I mean, anyways, oh. so despite the fact that we came out in 2021, set a target to reduce its emissions by 40 to 45% by 2030 from 2005 levels. And again, choosing 2005 levels is a choice. I will never, I've even mentioned why it's a choice in the interview uh, with theater that's coming up because of the precipitous decline of emissions shortly thereafter because of the collapse of our economy in 2008. Uh, and yet, we still are not going to do this. And if you look at 
the emissions of each province. It's very clear why. Oh, you yeah. Know? No, there was like one chart I saw tweeted out today. And obviously everybody's culpable in their own way. We're not a bunch of Ontarians being like, we're the best. But like, I, I swear to God, that's not it. It's I get it. We're from Ontario. We're awful. We're Laurentian elites, blah, 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 blah. We're pompous. But like, really, it's it comes down to Saskatchewan and Alberta. Let's it's like oil call and gas. a spade a spade. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's and, oil and, and gas. Mean, yes, exactly. I'm not saying Albertans in particular are like have their lights on longer than I do. That's obviously not the case. It's the oil and gas industry that primarily operates in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Yeah. And, and of course, if Ontario hadn't got rid of its coal plants around the same time, we would not be looking much better given our basic failure on everything else we've done. But it still is the emissions have risen in Saskatchewan and Alberta because of oil and gas extraction, basically. And have dropped everywhere else, True, everywhere else again. And, and they have not dropped by the levels they need to. I, we should make that clear. It's yes, not like obviously. the other provinces are killing it and we would be totally fine if, if, if we weren't for oh, the oil and gas industry. But it is certainly true that that is a significant problem. And so to address climate change in this country, you have to address the oil and gas industry. That's it. That's the conversation we have to be having. And if we're not having that conversation, we're not having a useful conversation. Exactly. Well, because like that's the thing. It's like, yeah, you look at the chart. And again, it's not perfect. We're not where we need to be, even even if you were to take out Alberta and Saskatchewan. But it's like, oh, well, the only reason like Ontario's emissions dropped is because they stopped using coal. And it's like, yeah, exactly. We cut out a fossil fuel and it had noticeable benefits. Like who who to thunk? Crazy. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> Yeah. And again, it's like this is all like couched in the stuff that like just because we're not there doesn't mean we can't. Well, like we're really not on track to meet our goals, but like there are things that could happen. There's an emissions cap that is like supposed to be come like the new regulation that's supposed to be coming out that would like quite literally put a cap on oil and gas emissions. And we desperately need it to be strong and we desperately need it to be ambitious and we desperately need it to apply across jurisdictions. So like there's that. And then there's like clean electricity regulations that need to come out and again, need to be robust and need to not include natural gas as a clean fuel source because it's not a clean fuel source. God, what else is coming out? Oh, gosh, zero emission vehicle regulations are coming out. Like there's so much on the line in terms of federal policy and regulation right now that could be game changing when it comes to this. For instance, like, I don't know, not rolling back the carbon tax. And we're just oh, my God, I like I'm like hitting hitting my head against the wall just like over and over and over again. Guys, yeah. this freaking sucks. Like yeah. everything sucks. Did you know? Yeah, have you heard? If you if you're still listening to our show, you have to know because that's all we cover. It's good news that but I'm sure that this will all be solved by cop that's being run by an oil, oil baron. I'm sure that's going to really make everything perfectly fine. And speaking of trying to actually tackle climate change while ignoring the biggest problem, billionaires. Because a recent set of report came out that noted that billionaires, despite the fact that they personally emit a million times more greenhouse gases than the average person on Earth. Yes, you heard that right. A million times. And that they are constantly sort of defended. I mean, like the closest to a defense you get of the billionaire class is that they do philanthropy. And there have been some incredibly good pieces of work that show how philanthropy is, you know, basically used as a tool to maintain the sort of class system we have now. Winner takes all is one that I come to the top of my head. 
that sort of talks about how this use of philanthropy ends up becoming a way to like maintain power. That said, that is still a defense. And it turns out that even in that defense, billionaires and rich people are not very good at focusing on climate change in that a new report came out that they, that's noted that they have donated between eight and $13 billion to climate change mitigation last year, which might seem big. However, this, is, this report comes from Heated, that is only about 2% of the $811 billion that was of all philanthropic giving in 2022. And so climate change, which we need to do polls about 30%, put it down as like the highest worry they have is getting 2% of the money from very rich people, probably because they know that the number one way to mitigate it would be to stop flying on their private jets, and they don't want to. But they should. T. Laura. But they should. No, I don't even know what to say with this. It's like, yeah, exactly. They they suck. The billionaires aren't going to save us. Listeners know this. People know that Like, if, if you think about it for more than two seconds, you're going to realize they don't know this. And that's the other thing is that it's like not only would they have to stop flying in their jets, but realistically, and this is something that we've, we we kind of dip our toes in every so often, but it's hard because it's like, I know at least a couple of us, we tend not to talk about our workplaces on the show, but like a lot of us work in nonprofits. A lot of us are funded by philanthropic dollars in some capacity. And like, what would it mean for a billionaire to actually fund climate action in a meaningful way, it would mean they were funding themselves out of existence. And that's not going to happen. And like, that's what makes working in nonprofits, even for something like climate action or, or, for, or for whatever, so difficult and so tricky and so hard to reconcile. And it involves like a little bit of cognitive dissonance. But what does it mean when the one of the biggest best solutions to climate change and inequity and all of those intersecting overlapping isms and injustices in the world would mean that the people that often fund the work would be effectively funding themselves out of existence and understanding that they're not going to do that. They're straight up not going to do that. And then yeah. we come back to like the general point that we always make kind of, I don't know, tongue in cheek, but not really. It's like, oh, like revolution and guillotines, which like I understand that like functionally putting that into action is hard and developing like, I don't know, an annual strategy that functionally moves us towards that goal is difficult, but I don't know get out the chart paper maybe that's what we need to be doing because <laughs> get out the chart paper <laughs> draw some guillotines i mean i i do think that one of the comments i saw recently that i thought was interesting and important was about how we need to see a shift in terms of groups sort of doing advocacy or trying to do this work from basically requiring philanthropic dollars, you know, to being a member-based organization. And I think that's one of the inherent, there's a couple different inherent uh, values, especially that unions bring. But I mm -hmm. certainly think one of the, them is the fact that they are a members-based organization and so are not, are, don't have to worry about losing funding from one rich guy if they go against what they want because they have a membership. You know, they also have the advantage of actually being able to use, you know, their labor does societal goods, which they can limit. But I do think the stronger the nonprofit is going to be, or the stronger the sort of like group that's trying to make change is going to be, is going to come from mass member-based groups much more readily than it's going to come from people who are, you know, waiting for the next, next RBC grant or something like that, right? 
Yeah. No, exactly. Being actually like grassroots, community supported and driven is key. And like like you said, you used a really good example there of like labor unions. We also know that like some of the most compelling political campaigns in recent years have been have been largely small donor driven. So like these are these are just kind of like small examples of that. Anyway. The Green Majority is entirely listener supported. And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening. We are here with friend of the show, former correspondent, and filmmaker extraordinaire, Deirdre Leonita, who is the co-director and producer of Keepers of the Land, which a couple of weeks ago was part of the Planet in Focus Film Festival and is now upcoming and being seen all over Canada and maybe the world one day. We'll find out in this interview, <laughs> but thanks so much for being here. And that was a great intro. Thanks, Stefan. Uh, I do my best. You know, it's the, one, <laughs> the one that I can prep for every week. So by way of introduction, maybe you can give us just like a real high level what the film you know is about and and what you set out to accomplish with the film. Yeah, the, the film is called Keepers of the Land, and it is a 29 minute short from an area that most people know as the Great Bear Rainforest. It's an archipelago off of the west coast of Canada in British Columbia, about 500 kilometers north of Vancouver. So the film itself is a story from the nation about its culture and how that culture and their, their laws and their stewardship work is tied to their relationship with their land and their territory. Amazing. And so... I'd be curious, you've done work sort of in and around the Great Bay Rainforest before, if I'm remembering your previous projects correctly. Yeah. And uh, But I'm curious, how how did this particular project come to come to be? You know, like, how did you, how did you meet the folks who were involved and, and how did it sort of come out? Yeah. So my partner, Tavish, and I incorporated a couple of years ago. So we have a very small production company out here on the West Coast that we really think of as a place-based media company. So a lot of our work relies on the really long-term relationships we have with the people we work with. And that includes individuals, organizations, and communities of all different kinds. So this film stemmed from a relationship we had with my co-director, Doug Nieslos, who is the elected chief of the Kittisuhehe's Nation and at the time was also the stewardship director. And he actually messaged me on Facebook one day 
in 2021 and asked if I knew any filmmakers because he he wanted a storyteller who could help 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 him with a story and I yeah I took a couple minutes to think about you know think about whether I wanted to do this and if he would actually trust us to do it and and I volunteered us volunteered ourselves and Doug put a lot of trust in us and over the next couple years we got to know the community of Clem2 and we spent a lot of time with community members and a lot of time in the territory and I think what we came up with was a film that really reflects what the community wants the world to see of them and the work they do. Um, and I think that's a huge part of this film is that, you know, we're facilitators of the film, but it's really the nation's film and it it's their story that as told by them, which is quite different for a place that's pretty popular for natural history shows and tourism. Yeah, for sure. That was interesting watching it. Like, I mean, no one but folks from the nation speaks in the entire film. And it you know begins with one of the hereditary chiefs sort of speaking about his sort of guiding experience of the land. And then it sort of goes through some different people in, in the community and how they sort of experience the land and their their relationship to it. And you do this amazing thing of combining these interviews with just gorgeous shots of the area of the Great Barrier Rainforest, which people might have heard about because you're right, it is quite popular. Although there was one one moment in the in it that confused me slightly and perhaps you can just answer it for me because I'm just <laughs> curious, yeah. which is that in one of the sessions they're talking about taking measurements or or tracking bears and trying to figure mm -hmm. out whether or not it changes when tourists come back. Were tourists not allowed in this area for a while? Was that COVID related? Like what yeah. what caused that? That's a great question. Yeah, it was COVID. So during COVID, a lot of these areas were cut off because in some of these areas, the only tourism operator that's allowed in some of the Kittisuhehe spots is their own tourism operator. And that wasn't happening during COVID. And there are also a couple of, there's one big estuary that has other operators come in, but they were also shut down for COVID. So it's it's a heavily controlled region, which is pretty, pretty unique in its own right, because the nations up in the region have pretty much complete control over who gets access to their territory, because they have such big territories that don't have that many overlap issues. So they're big territories that are uncontested. And that means that each nation that has jurisdiction over those territories has has quite a bit of control over what happens in them. And that's, you know, that's a product of um, the space. And that's also a product of years of work by these nations in these areas with governments and on their own to make sure they have the information, the science, and the policy that enforces that. 
Right. So thank you. That's helpful. Yeah. I, 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 so I, I do have a couple sort of just from the film questions, and then I want to get from there sure, into yeah, some yeah. of the more sort of more goal of the film and sort of the considerations around the film. But because yeah. there's a few other things that I'm just fascinated about from a just a technical perspective, which is one, which is like, <laughs> there are some truly cool underwater shots in this <laughs> in this film. There are some yeah. like epic ones. And how do you do that? Are you diving and waiting for a long period of time? Like, how do you set yourself up to succeed in, these, some, in, in to take these sort of breathtaking shots? Like, you must have <laughs> been there for, I guess you said you started 2021. Yeah. So you're there for two years filming? Yeah, we filmed largely over the course of a year. Um, it was really important to cut to us to capture the four seasons because a lot of their calendar, a lot of the Kitasuhei's calendar, and the work they do is is season dependent. So there's programs that vary by season. And it was also really important to us to capture, to give the audience a really great picture of what the ecosystem looked like through time. And there's lots of different types of ecosystems, as you saw in the film, including the underwater one. And, and so... The underwater footage was largely captured by our cinematographer, uh, Tavish Campbell, who's my partner. And yeah, he's quite a talented underwater cinematographer. And and it was, yeah, I think it was 100% scuba, except for some of the salmon stuff, which was just snorkel. And But it was, it was all just, there might have been a couple of shots that were just the camera sitting on the bottom. Like sometimes with the herring, they're pretty flighty and they get they they get spooked by any sort of movement. So sometimes we just sit the camera on the bottom of the the seafloor and and wait for them to come by. But yeah, for the most part, there's someone there. We work off of a 40 foot converted troller, which we have out here. And it, it it's really important for access to all these places since the the Great Barrier Region is a huge archipelago, and you need to you need to be able to travel on the water to get to all of these places. Right, that makes a lot of yeah. sense and is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again. These are yeah. just like some of the things about watching the film is just an amazement of how the technical requirements would be to to do it. You know, there's other shots of the of the of the bears themselves that make mm -hmm. me wonder: Did you get that close to bears? Like they yeah. were, you were within. <laughs> Like couple, like maybe twenty meters max. Yeah, we we didn't get too close. There are some spots that are a bit tighter than others. Like the waterfall scene is pretty, like it's a it's a fairly small waterfall system. So, I I think yeah, we weren't too close. Yeah, we were maybe like maybe like twenty to thirty meters away at the at the nearest for one of the shots, but we used a really long lens. We used a 600 millimeter lens. So that that really helps. We never got we never got too close to the bears. Well, that that at least makes me feel, you know, better from that standpoint. <laughs> yeah. uh, cool. So, okay, so let's get a little bit to the the purpose of the film because obviously you were approached to make this film. Your friend in in the you said the elected chief, right? Yeah. reached out with a story to tell. So, can you paraphrase what the story that he, that, that he wanted to tell was? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was really Doug's vision that that made this film 
happen. And he, uh, we had our initial conversation about what he wanted. And what he said he wanted was a film about stewardship. And he said he wanted a film about stewardship and their programs. And he also wanted a film about the youth and about Indigenous laws and about the hereditary chief system. And and he wanted to make marine planning sexy. And that was, it seemed like a really tall order, actually, at the beginning. And, and over time, as we kept filming and we kept thinking about the story, I was actually in the edit trying to put all these pieces together. And I realized that all of those things are just so intertwined in the nation's culture that it wasn't as hard as I had initially thought because it you really can't do one without the other. So, it, yeah, what, what you got is the story that we had. It was really hard because we had initially wanted, I had initially had the goal of about 15 minutes for the film and that was the hard part was including all that and and still having a really short film and we didn't manage to do that so it's 29 minutes but (laughs) i mean it still doesn't feel that long (laughs) no it doesn't feel and 29 minutes is not a long film that's a short film you know like i put it on yesterday and was like oh it's it's 29 minutes that's (laughs) yeah all right great i will have time to do other things but you're right but there does all of those pieces do do come through and so the one that you mentioned there that I'd love to tap into a little more is the marine aspect of conservation. Because, like, mm-hmm. honestly, as someone who's mostly landlocked, I don't even exactly yeah. know what it means to conserve marine. Like, like when they yeah. designate an area for marine conservation, I don't even know what that even entails. So, can you can you tell us like what that looks like, and then maybe yeah, you because know, I know that part of this conversation is that some more land was actually some more water was actually protected in the last couple of years through some great mm-hmm. work by by the nation. And so, yeah, can you tell us sort of that story? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question because in school I studied ecology, and I told myself I would never study ocean ecology because it just seemed so complicated because you're working in an open system where there's so much movement, you know, on a daily and yearly and, uh, you know, decade long, you know, process. There's just so much movement in these systems. And there, there are so many ways that external factors that you're not thinking about can, can affect whatever you're studying. But what the nation has done is they've built a program over the last, you know, 15 years that conducts a lot of research in areas that are really important to the nation culturally, you know, largely for food. And they have obviously like millennia of knowledge passed down about, you know, how these places were used, what they've seen in the past. And I think that's what we're missing a lot of the time in our own, you know, colonial governments is that transfer of knowledge i think you know the shifting baseline is is a huge issue in in our own government systems in the four year four year cycle and what is even usually less than a four year cycle in terms of like you know ministry employment and stuff so yeah so the nation developed these research programs and in 2022 they 
declared their own marine protected area in Kitasu Bay, which is the bay that you see at the beginning of the film where the herring are spawning, which is obviously like a stunning region and is the main area in their territory where the herring spawn. And herring are these little forage fish that are the, the foundation of their whole ecosystem there, the whole marine ecosystem, um, because they feed. It's the first big feed of the season for a lot of the animals that often are migratory. And yeah, it just really kicks off the year in terms of life on the Pacific coast. So Kitasu Bay, so they choose these areas based on the importance not only to them to the nation culturally but to the entire lake system as a whole and Kitasu Bay was one of their biggest priorities and you know it's a relatively small area I think it's about 30 33 miles or something square miles but it has a huge impact a hugely dis disproportionate impact on the ecosystem and the surrounding ecosystems and that's kind of in a lot of cases, that's the goal of some of these areas, you know, rockfish cons conservation areas and other marine protected areas that are specific to species. They end up being nurseries for a lot of these species. And then outside of the area, everything else benefits, like fisheries can benefit, communities benefit, and anything that's connected to those ecosystems can benefit. So that's one of the benefits of an open system, I think. <laughs> Right, is that if you put part of it, more things can end up in it. Yeah, because it, it all filters out. So, you know, the good things that you do in these places that you close filter out into the rest of the open system. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a benefit that you don't think of when you think of the complications of studying <laughs> such an open system. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And And I mean, it was fascinating to hear to sort of and it's it's what is exact once you hear someone say it once or they explain it, you know, in the way that you did in the film, it makes perfect sense, you know, like that protecting the herring is sort of the basis of everything because of how yeah. many other subsystems grow out and grow and grow out. But it doesn't seem like that's often I mean, I, I don't know enough about conservation to say that that's all not what they do all often, but it sort of often feels like the place that get chosen for conservation has more to do with what is easy to conserve or more to do with yeah. what we sort of feel like, you know, doesn't have value to logging or other purposes rather than what are actually important and necessary for specific ecosystems to thrive. It's like we yeah. almost have that backwards. Yeah, totally. And I think that, you know, we we tend to, in all aspects of, you know, Western society, we really like categories. And as humans, I think we, in the West, we've grown up with this culture of categorizing things. And so we, you know, in these ministries, we have, you know, the scientists that study the salmon, and we have the scientists that study the herring, and the scientists that study the sea lions. And you also divide these areas up by region. So you have like North Coast salmon, we have like Central Coast salmon, we have South Coast salmon. And I think that can be a huge problem because it takes away whole systems thinking. And a lot of these species, including herring, um, especially, are species that are based on dynamics, population dynamics that operate on a whole other level and that operate on a, 
a whole other level geographically, but also in terms of how they interact with other species. So if we're not looking at species interactions, then we're taking out like a huge part of uh, what what actually is affecting these species. And oftentimes, because oceans are so complicated, we can't predict how, you know, removing one species or, you know, for harvest or through things we can't control like climate change, we can't predict what that's going to do to the rest of the system, which is kind of what's happening with salmon out here. Right. Right. That makes sense. And so the the, the title of the film, Keepers of the Land, obviously mm-hmm. speaks to, and as you said, the the goal of the film, which is to talk about stewardship and and the responsibility and the role I you know that the the, the Kitsu Haihais have within this territory and the ways that they think about it. And I think people can imagine the ways in which, as you said, that there's a difference between how an indigenous nation that has lived there for, you know, time memoria would have mm-hmm. their opinions on how to conserve be different than sort of a colonial conservation, don't go into this park and you can only hunt on weekends kind of situation. But yeah. obviously there's a lot there. So can you talk about the differences that you saw in your two years when you and in your talking to them and your experiences, you know, with indigenous-led conservation efforts and, you know, what would be done by, say, uh, the Canadian government or something? Yeah, yeah. And this kind of will feed off of um, my last answer um, about these management systems that we have in place that just put everything in silos. I think we can learn so much from these nations, these indigenous nations all over the place who have been living in one place for thousands of years and haven't moved from that place. I think that in itself is, it it gives you such a different perspective on resource management because you are heavily reliant on the resources in your local area, especially in these re- remote communities. And the Kitasukehes are um, hugely sensitive to their local systems. Um, and traditionally, Chief Ernest Mason Jr. talks about it in the film, but and so does the young Chief Vernon Brown, about how traditionally hereditary chiefs had jurisdiction over you know, certain parts of the territory. So they had jurisdiction of, it's like, you are the chief of this one river or this one watershed. And it's your job to sustain that watershed. And everything that your family pulls from is from that watershed. And I think that role has a whole new meaning when you rely on it for food and and water and, you know, your your own you know, cultural harvest that has a lot of impact on your stance within society and how you're viewed as a chief. You know, I think we have become so used to this idea of moving around. So we don't feel a sense of ownership over the places we live anymore because partially because of globalization and what that's given us in terms of access to resources, including food. You know, we don't have a connection to the places we live anymore. And I think that's that's one of the biggest things that the indigenous nations in this country and all over the world can teach us is the importance of that connection to place 
And it's something that we can all do ourselves in our own in the in our own places we live. So I think that's that's one of the biggest lessons. But I could probably go on about this for a long time. I mean, I mean, please do if you have more thoughts. I think it's like <laughs> you spent you know two years thinking about this, and this is yeah. like I think as you, we hear time and time again the ways in which indigenous-led conservation leads to more biodiversity than traditional conservation. Yeah. You know, like there's there are clearly things the way indigenous populations think about conservation on their own territory and their own land is clearly yeah. drastically more effective than what we colonial systems have managed to attempt in our work, right? Yeah. So like, there's obviously a lot of learning to be done. So if you have more thoughts or more yeah, things you experienced, sure. we're all ears. Well, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned from so many Indigenous folks that I've talked to about any environmental issue or any sort of stewardship work is the problem inherently in in having a world in having a word like environment because a lot of these people don't actually have a word for you know wilderness because that e even having that word separates ourselves from these places that we live in and i was on a panel a few few weeks ago in jackson hole wyoming where there were, you know, my co-director Doug was there and Giselle Martin from the West Coast of Vancouver Island was there. And then a few other folks from the United States, like tribes all around the United States were there. And none of them had a word for wilderness. And the closest words that each of them came up with was, you know, the place that we live. So I think language is actually a huge part of, of the problem. And our English language needs to incorporate words that connect us to our places. And that's like a that's a very big systematic problem. It's a systemic problem in our society. And that's why we need we really need the voices and the perspectives of indigenous leaders when it comes to policy. And we need to figure out better ways to include them because we literally don't have the systems in our society to create the change that we need. So it's not a matter of just like including more voices to be inclusive. It's a matter of it's the only it's the only way that we're going to change anything. Right. Yeah. We don't know what we're doing. That's what the matter yeah, is. Yeah. It's like we actually don't have we don't have the means to make the changes that we need to. <laughs> yeah. So like we need help. And there are people yeah. out there who know and what there to are do. people out there who have been doing this for a very long time and who probably have the answers. There are just so many instances where scientists have been working on a problem for years. And then finally, some expert scientist decides that it might be a good idea to ask the local indigenous people, you know, the question that they've been asking. And then turns out that they've known about this problem for the last like 500 years and they have a solution to it already. Or, oh, turns out that species isn't extinct because these people see it every day in their backyards. You know, once you include people who have been living in one place for 10,000 years and it turns out they have a pretty good system of of knowledge and I think we often think of oral oral history as kind of a lesser 
like older kind of knowledge transfer but it it's been working and we definitely put a we definitely put a stop to it in a lot of senses um during colonization and and that's a huge tragedy but but it seems to be working in terms of knowledge transfer a lot better than our current government systems you know we have people who come to these river systems and say oh 5000 fish that's that's a lot of salmon coming back in my last 2 years of working here i've you know last year i only saw 3000 fish but then you talk to like you know someone from stewardship the like kitasu stewardship and they're like no my grant my great grandma told me that we used to have 20,000 fish in this river we used to have like 100,000 fish in this river and we don't seem to have a really good written way of passing that down yeah it's amazing i mean how quickly and anyone who's done work probably in almost any field can yeah. see the problems of how quickly short term kpis can tell one story that <laughs> yeah longer term kpis you know which is sorry for folks it's key performance indicators it's the things people count often in nonprofit work or something like that to try to show that you're doing work but you can tell us like everyone knows how to lie with graphs right like you can yeah. i my favorite story ever was that the harper government for their entire time being in yeah. power would use the emissions from right before the economic collapse right. and then would draw a line <laughs> going down from there when if you looked at the actual graph, it, of course, dropped precipitously in 2010 and had been growing ever since. And so it was yeah. just like, oh, I could put take two, these two points eight or nine years through and I can show a downward trend, which is not actually reflective of the world at all. And you, yeah. know, you can imagine the same thing with salmon or, or any of these totally. other things. Like if you're not there for a long period of time and can experience the shifts, you can just totally get the wrong call from a few data points that you've decided are the only ones that matter. Yeah, it, it it's kind of a downside is, you know, we live in this era of information. We have access to so much information out there and it does make it easier to cherry pick data and still make it look like you have a robust data set, you know, and, and I think things like, you know, social media and the algorithms that you know, funnel you into a category don't help with that because... <laughs> You end up getting very cherry-picked data, you know, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. So, yeah, it's a, definitely a problem. There's definitely some issues. <laughs> yeah, and and, and it, it's we and we know it's true, right? There's all there's like a like the Godwin's law. There's one of these sort of like laws about it's my not Godwin's, but like one of these sort of like truisms that exists about about counting things and the and the longer you count something the more you will create a system that optimizes for the thing you're counting not for the goal yeah. itself and i think that's a lot of that is happens or a lot of the solutions can come from things that we have ignored like oral tradition and storytelling it gives you the chance to give the sort of actual purpose and like we've moved in even in nonprofit spaces, away from sort of just numbers to actually telling stories because we've experienced mm -hmm. that they're actually a better way to show what we've done. And yet it sort of hasn't flipped back and so much of the government systems and everything else still rely on, you know, counting stuff and ignoring the the yeah. stories or the experiences of people because it can't be counted. And yeah. that only perpetuates the problems we find ourselves in. Yeah, and and my co-director Doug he has so many stories 
like that. And so many stories where they, you know, they know something is happening, but the government says, oh, we don't know that it's happening because we don't have the data. And they're like, okay, we'll give you the data. And they spend, you know, the next 10 years doing the research and then they get the data and then the government, you know, responds. But, you know, often it just makes for a really slow system. And the nation is an amazing example of how we can combine traditional knowledge with Western science. But the fact that they have to, you know, battle battle the government on every front un- until they can get just the Western science is definitely still is a problem and, and something that needs to be improved within our, our federal and provincial systems. Yeah, for sure. And so for folks uh, who have heard this and and you know, want to support indigenous led conservation and the work of the of the kids of the of the Kitsu How can I? Yeah. So the Kitsu Nation has just embarked on a really ambitious fundraising campaign. And if people are interested in in knowing more or following along or supporting the nation, you can sign up with us at keepersofthelandfilm.com. You can sign up for emails or just follow along on social media, and we'll be releasing more information as things progress. And I think the world is shifting in terms of, you know, how people can really participate and help in the conservation world and the worlds of, you know, environment and everything that's connected to that. And I think the people who are being most effective, as you can see in the film, in terms of conservation, especially on the coast and especially in Canada right now, because of the powers that have been given to them in this age of reconciliation, you know, these nations are getting more and more power to manage their territories and their resources within those territories. And so these nations are all sitting at the policy table. They're all making their own management decisions for their territories. And they're doing more in a lot of cases than the provincial and federal governments have done in years. And there are ways to directly support these nations. So in terms of being effective in your conservation efforts, I would say look to the nations, like look to look to the nations closest to you. If it's not the Kitasukehe's guaranteed that you're living on some cool nation's territory uh, that is doing some very good work for this world. So I would encourage anyone to look look those nations up and see how you can help them. Awesome. And then if they want to see the film, how can they do that? Yeah. Well, currently we will be screening in Vancouver on November 18th, but we're trying to figure out a way for people to see it online. So just look for updates on our website and on social media. Do you want to tell us what the website and social media are? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can find the film at keepersofthelandfilm.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at K-O-T-L film and on Facebook, Keepers of the Land Film and Instagram at Keepers of the Land. Amazing. 
All right. So it's our tradition to give <laughs> our guests a last word of the show. So I'm going to do that in just a second so you can give any last thought you have to our listeners across this country. But before I do, this has been Deidre Leonita, the co-director and producer of Keepers of the Land. Thank you so much for being here. Always wonderful to chat with you. And huge congrats on such a wonderful film. And any last thoughts? Thanks so much. Well, I it's just so nice to be back chatting with you here at, at Green Maturity. And um, I guess my last thought, you know, people always ask me how how they can support Indigenous-led conservation, because I think there is a lot of willpower out there for people who want to help and and who want to you know, help amplify, amplify these voices. Um, and again, I would just say there's probably a nation not too far from you that's trying to do a lot of really good work for their territory, their people, their land, which probably includes your land too, you know, and they're often under capacity. And so they might not be able to do as much as they want. And so there's a lot of space in these places to help. Sometimes it can take time, as it usually does with people who have had their trust broken before, which we've done to these people and places. But I think I think there's a lot of room for really beautiful relationships and really long-term relationships and a lot of space for for allies. So yeah, just just look up your local nation, look up what they're doing, and ask how you could help.